0: Welcome to this episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour, broadcasting from the Good Food Mercantile in San Francisco. I am Luke Schmucker from Shaxbury Cider, and I'm here with Sass, the one and Hello. only Sass from Soakunder Spirits.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me uh, over today to your beautiful booth here at the Good Food Awards. Yeah.
0: So Sass, I'm excited to have you on. And there's a question that I know that everyone in the Heritage Radio Network Radio Network World is wondering
1: Yes, this is, is my the, real hair color.
0: What is the best cider and stonecutter gin cocktail that you can come up with?
1: So now I have had a bit of practice on this. <laughs> I some might say a lot of R&D. <laughs> um, and I have been lucky enough because we are neighbors. Yep. uh Shacksberry Cider and Stonecutter are in the same area and um, I I to also live down the street from the Cider Tasting Room, so you know I put in the hard work. And I would say one of my favorites that I have done was actually with the dry. It was one of the initial releases. Um, And it was that with our single barrel gin, which is a gin that's aged in bourbon barrels for four months. So it's got a little bit more earthy, deeper notes to it. Um, And then I layered in uh, a little bit of pineapple and sage and a touch of lime. Um, so it was a little tiki, it was a little tropical. I did it for a pirate menu. Yeah, it was called Queen Anne's Revenge, um, but it was pretty, pretty nice. The revenge was sweet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So you're here at Good Food. What did, uh, what did you guys win for?
1: We actually won for that gin, which is very exciting. Um, I'm like a proud mama right now. Yeah, uh, congratulations. Because one of my babies did, got an award in school. <laughs> um, yeah. So the gin, which is, uh, it's an unusual product, right? Most gins aren't aged. Uh, and it's an untraditional way of doing things. Um, and at Stonecutter, we like to do things a little different, Yep. Um, but do it in a way that makes things more approachable for people. And so what I kind of thought about with the gin was how can I take a bourbon drinker and let them know that new American craft gin is not your grandma's gin. It is nuanced and interesting and balanced and complex and a little mischievous. Um, and so I aged the gin in the bourbon barrel with the recipe developed around the aging. So cardamom and orange peel and coriander, all these like lovely spices that yeah. complement the barrel.
0: You definitely get I love the cardamom notes in there are just <laughs> delicious. Uh,
1: it's an obsession now.
0: <laughs> so what's special about aging spirits up in Vermont? Is there something special about the like environment or climate up in Vermont that really makes it great for barrel aging?
1: Yeah, uh, you know what? It does actually make it fabulous for barrel aging. Thank you for noticing that. Um, yeah, so what's crazy about where we are in Middlebury and, and Addison County, the edge of Addison County, too, um, is that we're tucked really up against the Green Mountain Range, which is what Vermont is known for. It's why everyone comes to ski with us. It's great. Um, And the way the weather patterns work out there is that they come over the Adirondack Range, they sweep across Lake Champlain, and then by the time they hit the Green Mountains where we are in Middlebury, they actually kind of stall. And what that means is that we experience it as huge temperature swings, huge barometric changes, um, humidity changes, and so I welcome that into the barrel room year-round because those swift changes do fabulous things for the wood in barrels. Um, it lets them swell, it lets it contract, and it's pulling the spirits, the gins, the whiskeys, the bourbons, in and out of that wood, which creates complexity, it smooths out all the edges, um, it really makes damn fine spirits. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, it's one of the best places in the world to age.
0: In addition to your gin, what other products do you guys have?
1: We have a whiskey out right now, and this is the year that we are going to do something we haven't done before, which is release new products. We haven't Whoa. done it in ages. Um, and so I've had some, some little experiments tucked around the barrel room um, that I am excited to share this year, and actually in a few months. Uh, we'll have two new things out in small little limited releases. One is actually a barrel strength version of our Heritage Cask Whiskey, which is the Heritage Cask I like stole a bunch of different traditions from all over the world and then kind of made an American version of them. Um, It's quite tasty. Uh, And then we took that, and it's actually, it's really great at 90 proof, but it's even cooler at 117, which is what it comes out of the barrel at. Um, It's pretty dope. Um, and then, actually, with a co- uh, we collaborated with uh, another good food uh, person here, Runamuck Maple, and uh, they gifted us a couple of their maple barrels, and we aged our whiskey in that for 12 months, and awesome. it is so delicious. It's like a Manhattan in a glass Whoa. at 88 proof.
0: So. All of that sounds absolutely delicious. Now <laughs> I just keep thinking about like barrel aged maple syrup, which is another,
1: which is another beautiful product yeah.
0: coming from out of Vermont. Uh, so if people were coming up to Vermont, they want to hang out with Sass. They want to get the Stonecutter experience. Where can they go? What can they do?
1: I mean, they just call me up. Just <laughs> I'll leave my cell phone at the end of this. No big deal, we'll hang. It's cool. Um, Stonecutter is very lucky. We have we just opened a second location um, in Burlington called Highball Social. Um, and it functions as a seven day a week cocktail bar and tasting room. Um, and it's really where we let people have a first introduction to a lot of the work that we're doing. We created Highballs on Tap, I learned this last year, how to carbonate gin and whiskey. Very fun, if you ever want to nerd out, I can go deep on that. Yeah. Um, and then we have our tasting room, which is attached to the distillery in Middlebury. So the OG space, it's kind of like our laboratory. You can see like all the test gins from when we were first doing our tests. You can see kind of where our space is, where we work on cocktails and we work on collaborations. It's where I developed that beautiful It cocktails in that space. Beautiful. Um, yeah, so it's a lot of fun and uh, it's a cool, you can kind of see the nuts and bolts and then you can see kind of the final gem product in both those locations.
0: Awesome. Uh, what, in the spirit world, in the cocktail world, at I- the good food mercantile? Like, what are you you excited about?
1: I'm excited about a lot right now. Um, And there's a lot of trends that we have been seeing. We talk about this a lot at Stonecutter. Like, we look at kind of what's happening in the bars that we're visiting, for our friends that are making things. Um, You do see more people doing barrel-aged products, which is, I just get excited about. I think everybody should do it, it's great. Um, You're seeing a lot of traditions from overseas kind of coming over here. Um, I think Japan right now is a huge influence on the cocktail world, um, from the highball machines to the patience and respect that goes into crafting cocktails in Japanese culture. Um, that's really translating on over into, into what we're seeing in our bars, which we've always obviously had that, but it, it's a meticulous nature that is cool to see. Um, I also think collaborations are are all 2019. You're seeing folks uh, partner with people you maybe wouldn't necessarily think they would. I loved your guys just came out with that cider, that ping pong with Modern Times Brewery. Yes. Um, and I like that's such a cool product, and it's only because two different companies put their minds together. So you get to bring your different perspectives um, to a product and then put it out in the world, and there's nothing cooler than that.
0: I'm still trying to figure out a way I can get Regalis to pick up Admiral Malting's Germinating Barley, which when you bite into it tastes like cucumbers, to be used in salads.
1: My mind was just blown.
0: It's a thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the next thing. Germinating uh, barley is going to be the next salad ingredient in 2019 calling it now.
1: Wow. Yeah. I'm I would bet on that horse. That sounds delicious.
0: <laughs> we have nothing left. Like that's just, <laughs> like we we've have to sprouted go somewhere. All the we've, other grains. <laughs> <we've> spr- <laughs> exactly. Everything has been sprouted.
1: We're moving on to barley and malt. <laughs> awesome.
0: Well, uh, Sass, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for coming over and hanging out. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to HRN on tour. Listen to more interviews from the Good Food Mercantile at Heritage Radio Network
2: Welcome to this special episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour, broadcasting from the Good Foods Mercantile in San Francisco. My name is Krista Cotton, and I'm the CEO of El Guapo Bitters in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm here interviewing Raymond Sneed of Cocktail Punk in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome.
3: It is a pleasure to be here.
2: We are happy to have you. Um, we are um, bitters makers and we are Two here. Two small bitters makers. Very small bitters makers. <laughs> we are here um, at the Mercantile. Uh, last night we were at the Good Food Awards and we were sitting one row apart as we uh, accepted our awards. So uh, tell me about your product that won an award last night.
3: Well, my product is called Oak Aromatic Bitters and it's. Um, something we did as a collaboration with a a well-known bartender in Denver and Boulder, Colorado named Brian Dayton. It is basically his platonic ideal of a perfect aromatic bitters for Manhattans. And what he was after was a smoky take on the aromatic bitters, and I think that's what we delivered.
2: Okay. Uh, I can't wait to try it. So, where can you tell me more about the distribution of this product and also your others? I feel like a lot of companies in our position, one of the biggest struggles that they have is uh, figuring out distribution and uh, making a lot of mistakes and then learning how to rectify them.
3: Absolutely true. And uh, we started selling in earnest in 2013 and developed the Colorado market pretty easily. Um, close to Denver and close to Boulder fairly well connected with that market and attracted a distributor and and was successful there. But very, very frustrating with distribution anywhere else except the contacts you can make directly with small retailers around the country. So we did a lot of direct wholesale and sold in Colorado. Okay. Then I took on a partner, which is a distillery in Boulder called Vapor Distillery. And there are a lot of advantages to that, including space that we lease from them, they make the base alcohol product for us, but we also had access to their wider distribution, which was in many states. And of course, that doesn't mean you get distribution in those states, you get an introduction. Right. (laughs) And you have to win the the day. And we've been lucky enough to do that now, and I think we're adding the 11th or 12th state next week. So big challenge and I solved it with a partnership.
2: That's amazing. So five years in and you have a partner and you're taking on more states.
3: Indeed. And my partner is a man of the world and he realizes you have to have the production capabilities when you start taking big orders. Right. So this has caused us to invest in a fairly large bottling line, 30 feet long and. Semi-automatic, and uh, <laughs> we can make a lot of bitters fast, and right now, that line is idle a lot of the time. Right but that's a good problem to have.
2: That's true, so you have a lot of room for growth in the future. Yes. A lot of small makers in our position, as they're learning and um, beginning to scale up, also have that problem with keeping up with production. It sounds like you solved your problem with a bottling line and taking on a partner. Uh, Are there any mistakes that you made um, earlier on in 2013 and 14 that you um, learned how to fix later on?
3: Well, absolutely. We started out with a, a two uh, spout filler and a, a tabletop labeler. <laughs> and the first mistake you make when you start suffering in capacity. Is to think you can scale in a simple linear way. Right. By two two spout fillers and two labelers. Right. That did not work well for us.
2: Right. <laughs>
3: it ended up with one of them out of commission most of the time, and the same amount of bottling Uh-oh. as the old days. So. Well,
2: hopefully it wasn't out of commission because you beat it up or well, dropped it. <laughs> w-
3: things happen, as they say. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, I think the point here is that small businesses are naturally afraid to invest. Yes. Terrified. Right. And you have to.
2: Right. So you have to do it. We are currently in the process in New Orleans of moving to a larger facility. So uh, we're backfilling an old catering space and we're moving into a new building that will be triple the size so that we can quintuple our capacity. Wow. And it is very scary. It's a yeah. big financial investment. It's a big time investment. Um, and it's, it's definitely um, can be overwhelming as a uh, maker, just because the investment seems so large and if you've, it, you could easily fail. Uh, do you have any tips for makers to learn how to overcome uh, or financial challenges, like who to talk to or what to do to get yourself more comfortable with the idea of investing in your business?
3: Well, it surprised me how cheerful Uh, banks were, when we actually went out to finance this bottling line, I thought they would not be interested at all in a small company, but it turns out if you're a small company with a track record, you can show them the sales arc, and you can pay your bills, they're very happy to give you more money than you would imagine. Right.
2: They're very willing to listen.
3: Very willing to listen. That surprised me, and, um, so far it's worked out well we have more capacity than we need for a, a price that we can afford. So, Great. So, all good.
2: Okay. So, talk to bankers, that would be?
3: Talk to bankers. It's not as terrifying as, as the stories on the street would have you believe.
2: <laughs> okay.
3: Tell us about your winning bidders.
2: Okay. Uh, So, we won for two of our products. Uh, One of them is our barrel-aged tricentennial bitters. Uh, Last year, we won a Good Food Award for our chicory pecan bitters, which is our number one selling product. And this year, uh, we entered the tricentennial bitters, which is the barrel-aged version of that product. Uh, So, they're made with Congregation coffee. Uh, They're right down the street from us, and we love their products. They're also uh, members of the Good Food uh, Mercantile. Good Food Merchants Association, is that what it's called? Um, So we work a lot with their stuff, but basically we just barrel aged it and we added additional cardamom and vanilla. uh, And it's a very, very, different flavor profile, it's um, it's hard to explain, but we have we have both of them on our table and you can taste them and kind of see the difference between the two. But uh, the other product that won was our sweet potato syrup. And actually our employees really wanted us to enter this product. And at first we were like, I don't know, it's super seasonal and kind of weird and- Very like, it's Southern. Very Southern and very holiday-esque. But we let them pick one and that's what they wanted. So we entered it and that, that won. So obviously our employees know what they're talking about. <laughs>
3: well, I have another story like that. Um, we have a seasonal bitters, okay. which I called Saturnalia, which is named after the Roman solstice celebration in ancient times. Okay, And it's a cranberry, uh, toasted walnut, Ooh. citrus, delicious, beautiful, great and bold wine that things. sounds great. Um, Toddy's killer with modern gins, things that are a little less juniper forward. Mm-hmm. You can get the Cosmo effect with the cranberry but i i mar- marketed that as a seasonal product mm-hmm. so i sell it in november and no time else in the year because people are so fixated on that market right that was a mistake I made. So
2: we're learning that as well. Yep. We um, we <laughs> we you have won't a,
3: see another seasonal product from me from for us. a while.
2: Right. So we have holiday pie bitters, and we have people that order those year round, and they will pitch a fit if we run out or we don't have them. And it's so strange because you think you know baking spices and all of these things, and it's just going to be in like a holiday Manhattan or old fashioned. But no, people are diehard fans, and we've really had to start making that year-round, basically, or make enough for when pumpkins and sweet potatoes aren't in season that we can get us through until they're back in season again, because people really want their seasonal bitters when it's not in season. It's very strange.
3: Well, I I would love to have that experience.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us your website and your social media
3: handles? Uh, It is cocktailpunk.com, and the handle is at cocktailpunk. All right. Simple and sweet.
2: Well, thank you, Raymond. It was a joy to interview you.
3: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Listen to more interviews from the Good Food Mercantile at heritageradionetwork.org.
4: Uh, hello, welcome to this special episode of Heritage Ra- Radio Network on tour, broadcasting from the Good Food Mercantile in San Francisco. I am Eli Cairo of Olympia Provisions, and my guest today is my wonderful sister, Michelle Cairo. Um, first Little intro to this, Michelle Cairo being my sister, I am a meat maker, we're here celebrating our 15th Good Food Award, which we are very, very excited about. Um, And I can easily say, without my sister, I would have been out of business the first day of work. My sister, will tell you a little bit about her background, um, but why I wanted to interview her is, I think it's very important when you come to these shows that you have a finance mind behind uh, owning these little companies. And Michelle, first question for you, who's your favorite brother? (laughs) Oh, you shut it.
5: Let me, that's a hard one, just kidding, you.
4: Second question, Uh, what's your favorite category out of all of them, and don't say charcuterie?
5: Uh, I mean, I guess it's cheese. I mean, cheese is pretty obvious.
4: Yeah. Good answer. (laughs) So uh, will you just tell me real quick, so everybody knows, how did you get your finance background? What did you do to get smart in money?
5: Um, well, well, Elias was off studying charcuterie in Switzerland. I was studying finance at the University of Utah. And then um, I went and got my master's at U- Utah State. So I have an MBA, too.
4: And then what were you doing when I came back? Uh, what was your job and role? before you opened Olympia Provisions after I paid so, you for
5: money? Um, I was a CFO for a different company called Opus Solutions, but I've always been in finance. I loved small business consulting. It was like the universe kind of opened up for us. Like Eli went out and studied the world of charcuterie and I happened to go study the world of business and we thought those worlds would never actually intertwine and some stroke of luck we ended up getting to work each other, work with each other and still like each other and run an, an awesome, fun business together.
4: Would you say that that stroke of luck is that if you watched me run this company without you be part of it and you were like, you're hemorrhaging money and are bad at business, so I should save you?
5: No, <laughs> <laughs> I would not say that ever. But um, I mean, I do think we have skills that complement each other like you are obsessed with product quality and i'm obsessed with running a quality business so i mean i think as long as we keep doing both what we love and don't intertwine so much that's i think what's part of our success
4: great uh so from a finance world as you look around all these amazing producers and all these young startups and all these companies that are doing the right thing what is the three most key Financial things you would tell them to do right out of the gate. Let's say they won your, imagine us 2009, okay. first time to San Francisco, we were, 10, 10, we were broke, we had barely enough money to get down here. What, now that you've seen us go through all of these, what are the big three things you think they should be focusing on right out of the gate?
5: I mean, if they're makers without a finance sister. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, since they can't change their sister or family, um, I would say that they've got to. Um, First thing I would say is they have to hire a good bookkeeper because I I know this is so dorky, but I mean artisans aren't necessarily good accountants, and I I know that's like not what everybody wants to hear, but like you can't if you're not measuring it, you can't fix it, and then you don't know where you're at. So so I'd say hire a good bookkeeper, cheap, twenty-five bucks an hour. I know that's not that cheap, but worth it. And so you can focus on your product. And then I'd say second, I would read, um, prof- not profit first, uh, well, God, maybe, um, I'd read two books. So number two, I would read um, simple numbers and make your bookkeeper read that too. And that way you have metrics to make sure you're not going to sink. Yeah. And then um, I would read Profit First because yeah. it tells a small business owner how to set your business up right from the get-go, and it's as easy as, like, the envelope system. Mm-hmm. So those are my three.
4: Okay. Those are all good. And, yes, very geeky and nerdy, but I like that. That's why we're in business still. Um, what do you think the importance of the Good Food Awards is for these small producers like us and everybody else that's fortunate enough to be here?
5: I mean... When we entered the Good Food Awards that first year, I had no, I mean, they just randomly called us and said, submit your product. Are you guys interested? And I sent our products and I guess I would have never known how much impact it would have had. I think it's like one of our top, if not top things that like progressed our brand the quickest because I think what happens is these small businesses don't have the money for exposure, like nationwide exposure. And so when you win something that has, win something at something that has such a reputation, like the good food awards, it like instantly puts you into a different class. And I think like all of us are trying to differentiate from each other, you know, and differentiate from all these foods that have been out there, you know, cheeses, all these salamis that are out there in the mass market. And a good way to do that is like be recognized by something like as amazing as a good food award. So, um, yeah, I mean.
4: Yeah, that's good. Good answer. So let's say uh, uh, let's say I'm uh, trying to uh, get my business going, right? I'm looking, I'm at that horrible point where you're trying to, you have a great idea, people are loving your product, and I need more finance. I need some money. Uh, and there's a million different ways out there, as you can imagine. A lot of these people are finally getting their first boom, right? They're going to, they won an award. They have to increase... They have to increase production. Um, <clears throat> what's the best way in your mind, safest, best, whatever it is, to go get that finance? And I mean, how to grow that finance? Like, do you I take am, a big chunk? Where are you at?
5: I mean, I am not a big chunk kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, for us, I think what's been really successful is... Um, You know, we started out with, like, family money, like, borrowing money from our mom. I had some savings. And I think those are where you start. Because if you bring in investors at the beginning, it's you lose all control. And, like, the whole point of you getting into being an artisan and making your own product is to be able to control the quality and what you're doing. And so I think, like, if you can do it without bringing in an investor I always say do that because like the minute someone else is like they're your boss they're answering like even if you don't think they are they're hoping for a return and so um, yeah I mean I try with my family and then get crafty like that first year when we were going like that we were broke and so so we invented the salami gram you know like it was like valentine's day and we're like okay how do we raise some money it's february restaurants are slow uh okay let's like do singing salami grams and And it really took off. And, you know, we launched our Salami of the Month Club, so then we got all the money in advance. And so I think you just have to be creative about how to raise money. Um, It doesn't always have to be debt. It doesn't always have to be family members. But I just, a word of caution on investors too soon. Yeah. If Uh... ever.
4: That's really good feedback. And so what about loans, SBA loans? What's the What's the yeah. best route, like I if mean, you have to go to the we've bank? We've
5: done SBA loans. So in our first business, we did an SBA loan. So um, SBA loans are great because they guarantee it. I mean, it requires collateral. So if you don't have it, it's a little tougher to get. Right out of the gate right out of the gate. But like SBA loans has been what has helped us grow without bringing on an investor. And so, I mean, all of our loans actually have been SBA loans. So, um, I mean, they're not operating right now, but (laughs) maybe in a week or two. (laughs)
4: Hopefully, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, and the importance of a web store, you talked about that. How, How, what has that done to us? Like, what was, how did we get from that what did we do our first year in sales? Eight hundred thousand, something like that. Three hundred thousand to <laughs> eight hundred. I wish to you know like to a make million. It
5: sustain, yeah. yeah. You know. So, um, I it's funny we didn't have a web store the first Good Food Awards, and everyone was like, "But I want to buy your product online," and I was like, "Oh shoot, how do we like?" do that. And so that next year we had one. And I think it's really important for small producers to have that direct communication to their customers and it's a good way to like figure out how to do it the easiest, so either through a farmers market. Web store's so great, especially for people at Good Food Awards because they're getting all this national exposure. Most of this these products you can't find in every store across the nation. So it's like an awesome way. For them to get the product to their customers, so I, I, I'm such a huge fan of our web store. I mean, I think it does 15% of our total sales annually, but it's, they're pretty, it's amazing, and it's awesome to like test things out that way. I don't know, and we've learned a lot through it. You have to be good at fulfillment, which we've gotten good at. It doesn't come naturally. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> just send it to all your family members and see how it gets to them, and then <laughs> keep tweaking.
4: Keep working at it, for sure. Yeah, that direct-to-consumer sale is a big part of our business, you'd say. I mean, how many farmer's markets a week do we still do? I remember the first year we opened, I was like, yeah, we'll do one farmer's market. It'll be pretty amazing. And we had, like, a cash-profitable event. Michelle's like, we're doing 15 next year. And I was like, oh, Lord. And so We still
5: do 17.
4: Yeah, we do 17 now. And so those direct, you know, where you can get the highest um, margin profit on your product directly to your consumer and get your name out there is a really way to bootstrap some cash and stay afloat. I know it's worked for us. I
5: mean, I think it built our second plant was farmer's market. So I think that's that cash flow. And then like once you figure that and tap that market, then you think about like wholesalers because then you're like selling at such a lower margin. But it's the combination. It's figuring out all streams.
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's much more scrappy to get financing that way than just finding the dream investor. Oh, God, and yeah. I think we've had a great time with it. It makes us We're scrappy. a much better company. So if you had <clears throat> in all the logistics that we have, having our product, getting across the nation, meeting people, all the growth we've had in 10 years, if you had a Michelle Cairo magic wand that you could change the infrastructure of how America does business, what's the one thing (laughs) you could do for these producers to make it easier for us all? That's a huge question. Think about wholesalers, how to get your product across, sourcing ingredients. That's a loaded question.
5: I I mean, I think one thing that wholesalers could do, like national wholesalers and all that kind of stuff could do is... um, you know, have divisions that just work with small businesses, and and don't. I mean, I I think that they have to understand that like good food, you have to pay for it. And asking an artisanal producer to do like a free fill or to like Explain guarantee what a free fill is for it's people basically like it. if happens. I if I bring your salami into my shop, you have to do one free fill across the nation. Well, that will sink a lot of distribution. So many people do it, and um, we've always not done that because well. Mostly out of necessity because we couldn't afford it, but like so many small producers think you have to do it. And so I think if like people are like, okay, they can, if wholesalers consider like, okay, these are small businesses that I'm, that need the cash. And like the customers will pay for it if they know our story and help they, and the wholesalers help tell our story. Um, I mean, if I could, I guess if I could, to make it simple, if I could get to wave a magic wand, I'd probably, Get rid of free fills and discounts on oh specialty God. products because it's so ridiculous. No, it.
4: it's so true. Yeah, that's a good one. I would have never thought about that, but that's yeah, weird. it does. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. And so, in our company, uh, we now operate seven restaurants. We have a meat plant, a web store. Uh, we do 17 farmers markets, event and catering. We export. We distribute. Would you? We export to Japan and Canada. Do you think it's a smart move, knowing what we've done, to be that diverse in 10 years? Like, if these people are like, oh, I have a great salami, I should open up a sandwich shop. That could sell these salamis, or, or a cubicle, or a restaurant, or God forbid, a bar. What's your What's your knowing what you know now?
5: More God forbid a restaurant, but not um, <laughs> a bar. Um, uh, would I have done it the same, and would I recommend it?
4: Yeah, how like How does that play in? Like we're so diverse. Like, we're so we diverse. So and what I recommend it's also it? I mean, in
5: a way. for me, it's all come out of necessity. Like we, in my opinion, we needed all sorts of different streams of revenue: the web store, farmers markets, restaurants. Are all a way to move our product. So we just have a lot of channels to move product. So for me, I think it's been really important for our success. But I would say it's been a distraction at times, and we've like lost our focus at times and like. L- put our foot off the gas for restaurants and ignore them. And then they are losing money and then we're back on. And so you just have to have the right team in place. I probably would have, if I had the right team in place earlier, now it's like, okay, we need someone in charge of restaurants. We need, And then some me overlooking the whole thing has worked out. Um, would I recommend it at the beginning? Probably not. I'd say stay focused on making the best quality product. We have a huge team now that helps us, but focusing on best quality of product, getting into the hands of the consumer is probably your number one, and then figure out different ways to move your product. To get
4: scrappy and try to make it, yeah. That's great, great info. What have I missed? What 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 have I missed that you would say from a finance perspective? As you walk around here and you see these people, that is there anything glaring that you're like, oh my God, you spend way too much on packaging. Your marketing's horrible.
5: I mean, it's because I just went around with you and you heard me say that. That's did too much. You? Just I, I said that was too expensive packaging. But oh, right. um, you did. Multiple times. But, um, I know. I mean, I think it's it's hard because we get so excited about our products and like we're like, oh, we need to gold plate it and do all this stuff. But like we still you still have to focus on the bottom line. So you got to know your numbers and know that you're creating a sustainable business. And so, I mean, that would be my word of caution to all of them. Like, it's fine if you want a 50 cent package to put your product in but you better be charging that customer two dollars for it and if you can't then you've got the wrong project and you just got to be creative about it so
4: is there a network for us producers that don't have really brilliant sisters like you to like get a hold of to talk to to ask these questions is there you know
5: yeah I mean I think besides reading, which I am a huge proponent of, I mean, I'd ask for mentorship. There's also like entrepreneurs organization, which I belong to, but like you have to be at a million dollars of sales and more, but they have like accelerator organizations where you like work in teams to figure out each other's. I mean, I think like the more that producers are talking to each other and working together and like forming networks, like you don't have to belong to an official one, like find five producers at the food show and like, be like, okay, let's create a forum and figure out, let's talk about our problems. Like I think as entrepreneurs, everyone is like so siloed and not thinking like they're just, you're so overwhelmed. But if you like had a moment to talk to producers, schedule an hour with that fight, with your five art, artists and friends and talk about what you're going through, everyone's figured this out in some way. Like you're not dealing with the only pro, a problem that's never occurred before. So I think it's pretty important to network and belong to groups and read. And and all that stuff.
4: Awesome. All right. <clears throat> We're finished here, Michelle. So last question we have. Give me your favorite entrepreneurial quote. <laughs> Dig deep, I so mean, God. Make us feel like a calendar.
5: Um, I mean, the only one I can think of, because I'm a little bit tired. Oh, <laughs> oh you know what I'm going to say. Uh, fatigue's there's two. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Um, and so okay. as it's an smarty. entrepreneur, you're working so hard, and if you are not rested and balanced, you can't make a good decision. So I think that one's important. And um, and then my other favorite one is um, if you think you can't and you think you can, you're right. So like, no, you can, and like, figure it out. You're you're gonna be right. So, no, you can do it.
4: That amazing, sis. You're smart. I'm very fortunate I have mm-hmm. you. I love you more than anything. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to HRN on tour. Listen to more interviews from the Good Food Mercantile at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks, everybody.
5: Thanks. Welcome
6: back to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director for HRN, and we are coming at you from the Good Food Mercantile in San Francisco, and I have a very special guest joining us right now. I have Michael Dwork from Verterra Dinnerware. Welcome, Michael.
7: Thanks, Katie.
6: I'm really happy because we're just kitty-corner to your booth right here, so I got to just run over and snag you very quickly, um, but I think this is your first interview with HRN, so uh, I would love for you to just, um, first of all, for anybody who maybe wasn't, At the Heritage Radio Network Gala at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, Uh, didn't get to see the Verterra compostable dinnerware in action. Tell us about your product line, and then I'll ask you for the story of the company.
7: Sure. Uh, So Verterra makes a line of uh, eco-friendly disposable products. Uh, Some are certified compostable, and some are just sustainably sourced. Uh, We started with a line of palm leaf plates, and then expanded into balsa wood and a few other items.
6: Cool. So, how did you fall into this line of work? Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to find yourself in this industry.
7: Yeah. So there, there really is absolutely no reason that I should have ever started this company. Um, I had been working in the finance industry, and then I lived in China for a few years, and I came back, went to business school. And when I when I was in business school, between my first and second year. I wound up taking an internship in India and was invited to a small village that one of my coworkers was from. And When I was there, I saw a woman on the side of the road making palm leaf plates on these very crude presses. I completely fell in love with the product and proceeded to run around India, trying to find some theoretical factory that was making it and found that there really wasn't one. So I started working with people, and this is 12 years ago now, um, getting a production process set up and figuring out the sourcing of the leaves, the production, all these sorts of things, and that, that's where Verterra started. And then uh, a few years ago, uh, we, we started to have uh, like knockoffs show up in the market, and one of my mentors said to me, they're like, you, know, you, you can't think of yourself as, as a palm leaf plate manufacturer. You have to think of it yourself as an innovator in the green space. And they go, and now it's your job to innovate again. And we came up with our uh, balsa wood line, so using the leftover stumps from balsa trees and um, coating with a, a wax rice paper. And we have our like collapsible to-go box line, and now our cheese and charcuterie boards.
6: This is really really cool. Yeah. So, uh, when you went into business school, what were you thinking would be the likely outcome of that?
7: Oh, my expectation was to do private equity in emerging markets. Uh-huh. Absolutely nothing to do with making <laughs> palm leaf plates or uh, being in the food industry.
6: Were Were you into food when you went into business school, or has that come along with your company's development? Uh,
7: no, I was. I was always. I was always interested in food and food initiatives and sort of things affiliated with like a slow foods or clean food type movement. Um, but it wasn't something that I was at all. Extremely knowledgeable about it it was more of like a passing fancy and and being involved in, and developing Vertero over all these years has just put me in contact with so many amazing people, like the good food awards um, that i 've just learned so much about what really goes into the food system
6: cool and, and when you were in business school, did you were you looking into kind of sustainable businesses or um, you know kind of like Looking at alternative business models, and was this part of what you were focusing on going in, or did that emerge through your travel?
7: No, my my focus really was private equity in emerging markets, um, really helping fund and develop other people's businesses. When I came across this product, I just had a few sort of key moments in my life kind of bubble up in my memory to the forefront. You know, and one of them was leaving a large event. And seeing the unbelievable amount of waste that 's created, I mean people don 't think about how many dozens or hundreds of bags of trash will go into a landfill at the end of a cocktail party, um, and it 's all mixed between food and possibly recyclables and non recyclables and all these sorts of things and when When I first saw the product, you know that image, just concepts of sustainability and people forget 12 years ago if you were using 10% recycled paper in your printer you were like you were like the crazy green person right like <laughs> like the world has changed a lot. Fortunately,
6: that expectation has changed, and we've yeah. raised the bar a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean, it's amazing being here at Good Food Mercantile because we're surrounded by thoughtful people who are really doing yeah. business the hard way and really trying to do what's right in every aspect of what they're doing. Um, tomorrow kicks off Fancy Food, which uh, generates, uh, you know. I, I don't know how many attendees will be there, but there's a lot of tasting and many many, many thousands of people coming through and probably a lot of single use items is for Terra making a showing uh, at things like the um, you know the fancy food show or Expo West and some of these ginormous.
7: Uh, this year is the first year that we're going to be sort of co located with a couple of our distributors and sales reps at the show. Previous to that, we actually hadn't really thought it was appropriate. Um, you know, our our main markets have always been well, we started with catering at events and then grew into working with um, stadium schools and, and larger format events, then obviously the tasting events. Um, I think most people, most people still ask us if we only make three- and four-inch plates because that's what they see at every single tasting event, and they don't realize right. that we have almost 90 products in the line.
6: I, I think everybody would recognize those little square plates anywhere, but yeah. like your, your booth here is there's yeah. a ton of stuff. Um, and you are represented at a, a lot of really, really high-end food events now, um, yeah. which is really, really cool to see. Are Is, is the demand more than you can manage right now or how is that looking with your production It
7: it's 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 always been a challenge um, you know the the food industry changes what they want fairly regularly and without a lot of notice to manufacturers so you know for us we always have to be careful about how much we make so that we don't get stuck uh, when things change we've done frankly, a much better job in producing. Um, this year's the first time in probably six years that we actually did go out of stock on a couple of items. But you know, we, we've managed to bounce back from that. Um, but yeah, it's funny, the, those little plates that you were talking about before, here's a, a very random aside. Again, going back 10 years, there was no plate that was being made smaller than a six-inch plate. We started making those because we had leftover waste. That was about four or five inches. Wow! So we just said, let's we just re- make a sm- repurpose that. We said, let's just make a smaller version of our six-inch plate and see what happens. But we made it, and no one bought it, and no one bought it for a year and a half. So we literally just started like, basically giving it away. Yeah. And then it became the. In demand product. I mean, it's the, the perfect
6: thing because how many taste around events do you go to, and there's like a one bite thing? Yeah. And if you get a six inch plate, like one, it looks ridiculous, and two, it's yep. just so wasteful for a one bite yeah. item.
7: But what's even crazier is 12 years ago, people did everything on China. Yeah, it was literally tens of thousands of, of of porcelain plates were being brought into these events. These large it over It just felt so
6: heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, what does it mean to you to be here at Good Food Mercantile and uh, to be part of this scene of crafters?
7: Everything around Good Food Awards and the the team there is really just so unique and special. Um, that you know I. I don't want to single any one person out, because really they, they all just care about the organization so much, but, but what what has been built and watching it grow, you know, we, we've been a sponsor since their, their very first year. Um, it, it sounded kind of cool, kind of crazy, kind of like Sarah and her team were so insanely passionate about this that I was like, they're going to succeed, and we've, re- we've never looked back. Um, they have put together on on the merchant side just a spectacular group of people who are really who are on the board and are really involved in the organization and then on on the crafter side, just one seeing how many people are part of it and what it does for people who may have been focusing on. One specific type of candy for the last ten years and for them to be recognized for making a stupendous bite of food is is really something exceptional and so it's it's been fun and, w- and watching the organization grow
6: that's awesome yeah uh, any new favorite tastes that you have uh, discovered this weekend?
7: I, I, f- I feel like I'm going to get myself in trouble, because I have, I, I, have, I have a lot of friends in the room, but, but I also hate when people don't answer questions like this. Um,
6: what should I go eat right now?
7: Um, so, I don't eat pork, so a lot of the uh, salumis would be a, a no-go for me. Uh-huh. But the team from Red Bear out of Chicago makes some amazing products. And then there's a uh, chocolate called Fran. They do a gold bar that is highly addictive, so be forewarned.
6: Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. So I'm going to go find some charcuterie and chocolate (laughs) to finish up my afternoon snacking
7: with. Exactly.
6: That sounds awesome. Well, thank you, Michael, so much for sitting down with us today, and thanks for all of your support of Heritage Radio Network. We look forward to seeing you back in the city.
7: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Thanks. Stay tuned
6: to Heritage Radio Network on tour for more from the San Francisco Good Food Mercantile.